What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Andy Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a ton of money in the process. And on this show, I talk to these indie hackers to learn about the trends, the ideas, and the opportunities they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. Today, I'm sitting down with the founders of Where By Us, Chris Sofer and Bruce Penchbeck. How's it going, guys? Good. And we actually, one founder is not on here, Rebecca. She's busy building. We get to go play, but... <laughs> okay, so it's three of you, and you built a very cool business. It's actually two different businesses. So the first is called The New Tropic. You started this a few years back, and you've grown it to $1.5 million in annual recurring revenue. And then around the middle of last year, you decided to spin out another business called Letterhead, which you've grown to $25,000 a month in revenue. So a lot of progress here. Yeah, The New Tropic was the first thing we started under Where By Us, and it's a local media brand in Miami that's focused on like helping people get to know the city, find cool ways to engage, find other people to hang out with, and feel like they're part of the city. The tagline is live like you live here. And we actually have four other brands just like the New Tropic in other cities. The New Tropic's in Miami, Florida, and then we have brands also in Orlando, Pittsburgh, Portland, and Seattle. So that makes up our network of newsletters right now. And then we just launched in December this new software product called Letterhead that's helping anyone build and monetize an email newsletter built off of all of the stuff we learned doing this ourselves and technology we built internally to help us make our newsletters more profitable and, and so forth. I think one thing to note that is interesting about our genesis is we weren't setting out to make a newsletter product at the start. I met Chris and Rebecca because Chris was running civic workshops on how to make the city more interesting. And it's super nerdy, but there were hundreds of people showing up to these things about transportation and housing and affordability. And he would get them to kind of workshop ideas. Uh, Rebecca and I joined him on that journey and started learning about human-centered design. And every single time we hosted one of these meetings in the city, people would pitch ideas that were about, we need a resource that has all the information of what's happening in the city. And we were like, well, that's really hard to do and keep updated. <laughs> and Probably not exactly what we need, but we saw this energy and we're like, let's explore that. So we spent about a year while we were working full time doing research and just kind of understanding habits and behaviors and what people were doing. And the new tropic came out of that and it was an experiment. We had a year of runway and we had to try to figure out how to monetize it. And the landscape now newsletters are everywhere. You know, there's like a million groups and tons of resources and everyone's talking about it. But at the time it was kind of a wild card idea. And I think a lot of people were like, you're doing what? You're launching email? And like, they're like, I don't want email. And so we kind of built our business from that and our revenue kind of came in at a different approach as well. Whereas a lot of people were focused on membership now at the outset, we were focused more on, can we work with sponsors and advertisers right. in a local way? Yeah. Newsletters are obviously like the hot new thing the last year. Everybody knows all about newsletters. Everybody's starting one. I'm subscribed to like, I don't know, umpteen million newsletters at this point. But your stats are super cool. I mean, you guys have been doing this for years. We were talking earlier, you said you got profitable within a year of running the new Tropic. And your latest product, Letterhead, has been doubling in revenue every month since you started it last April. Let's talk about local news for a second because I am like the, the prototypical millennial tech person. My last memories of reading the local news were like, or watching the local news were like probably when I was a kid at my grandmother's house. And she lived in this tiny town called Hendersonville, North Carolina. You know, so she'd watch like Jeopardy, Wheel of Fortune, and then local news. And she would just like shake her head at all the crime or like a tear would form in her eye when somebody rescued a cat from a tree. It was very quaint, but it's like a millennial. I'm like, I don't, I don't care about local news. Why did you guys care? Uh, 
percentage of local TV news that's stabbings is completely disproportionate to to how rampant that problem actually is, right? But it's like it's all stabbings. Why is it all stabbings? All stabbings. And, and and what's so frustrating is that like people at local TV news stations actually do some awesome journalism on topics that really matter, but the experience of it as the user is not that, right? It's this other thing. And they'll do consumer investigation and they'll track like our restaurants following the health code and all these other things. So they're doing some important work, but then it gets marketed in this way that I think an opposite effect of what the people working at those places want. And there are actually studies that people have done, like Pew and these other organizations, like the more local news and particularly TV news you can the worse you feel about the city you live in, which it can't be the case that our goal in helping people like learn about what's going on in their city is like to make them feel bad about the future of their city. Unless you're like a super nihilist in your journalism, which would probably be a good newsletter. But anyway, um, I I think it's like, how do you change that? You know, And, and we heard that a lot from people like, I know things are tough. I don't want people to sugarcoat it for me and like only give me the good news because that feels saccharine and inauthentic. But help me understand like what we could do or how things could get better. Cause otherwise I'm just going to sit in my house and cry and you know, I could do that for free. So there's no business there. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I mean, we've always said if it bleeds, it leads. That's kind of been like the mantra for media. And so it's always conflicts, stabbings, robbings, disagreements, et cetera. And you know, not only is that true in local news, but we've also seen that online. And so topic du jour when it comes to social media is that people just tend to share the most negative, divisive, argumentative stories. And, you know, we're, you know, reportedly all trapped in these filter bubbles. But my personal experience has been that my filter bubble sort of shields me for that. I love my filter bubble because I'm not paying attention to random negative news. I'm just like going on Twitter and following cool people like you and going on indie hackers and watch people build cool stuff. And my filter bubble is like, it's all good things. And I'm not sure how possible that is to do in your space. Like how much can you really customize and filter local news? Part of the thing we embraced very early on is that we were not for every single person in the city. We knew our user and it was someone that cared about the city enough. They were invested in it. They were working on things in the city or, you know, just explore like the friend who would say, Hey, we're going to go to this new restaurant. We wanted to make it for that person. And so we were very, very careful about that. And I think that helped that we could kind of explore topics based around their needs, not just the city at large. And we could also approach explaining topics to those people specifically in that voice and that tone and not have to try to maybe go too far down that it's not interesting to someone who knows the basics and also not too far up that they just get lost in it. You kind of niche down, you built for a particular customer. I think a lot of people build apps and products just in general. They're like, I don't know who this is for, but like, I think it's a cool tool. So I'm going to build it. Yeah. I, I read this insane CV insights report a couple of years ago. It was about why startups fail. They do a great job of like tracking this stuff. It's really interesting. And a huge percentage of the reason startups fail by self-reporting is like lack of market need. And I find that fascinating because it's like, well, how did you even get started if there wasn't a need for this thing, right? And then you see people who are totally serving a need that really exists, but they feel this pressure to make it more generic. And we told you, you know, we felt that too. It takes a while to get comfortable, but we, you feel this pressure to like, oh, it's for everybody. Anybody can use this because otherwise my market size is too small or not enough. And I think it takes a lot of, at least in our case, time and comfort experience to get comfortable being like, it's for this. And being okay with that niche because so many people I think feel this pressure to try and service everybody. And I think our experience, that's the fastest way to die. And we've almost died a few times. And I think it was always because of that when you boil it down to that. So let's go through this, this story. I want to hear about these near deaths, but maybe uh, let's start at the very beginning. So you're part of like kind of this civic action group. People are telling you they want to know more about the city. They want a resource that just shows them everything that's going on. 
doesn't sound particularly realistic because how do you even come up with that resource? What's the first step you took? We did an insanely detailed, now in hindsight, research project about what it was like to be a local. And we tried to come at it from the perspective of just learning what it was like to live in the city without any idea of like, oh, we're going to build a media product or we're going to build this. We were just trying to figure out what are people doing? What do they want help with? Where are their opportunities to be helpful without an eye toward this is what we want to make? Because we didn't want to you know presuppose or like get confirmation bias. So we just went out and spent a lot of time with people. We followed people around on their morning commute. We went to somebody's house in the morning as they were like getting ready for school and like watched them put their kid in the car to go to school and like rode in the car with them as they took their kid to daycare and like followed on their route and went to drinks with people and just sort of like were a weird follow along, uh, <laughs> you know, attached to all these people. Yeah, just watching them. You probably don't need to go that far, but. <laughs> I was gonna say, do you have permission to do this? Or you're just following around random strangers. <laughs> yeah, like lab jackets on. Yeah, oh yeah, we definitely got permission. So what did you learn by tailing all these people? Because I assume you're collecting a ton of information. And this is kind of the difficulty of doing customer research. It's like you learn a ton of stuff, but like, all right, like where's the signal and the noise? Like how do you know which thread to follow, which information is, is useless? We sat in a room for uh, a weekend and put up a couple thousand post-it notes. Just every single thing somebody told us, we put up on the wall as a post-it note. And then we tried to organize them and say like, okay, which things are related to each other? And so we ended up with stuff about transportation. We ended up stuff about food and drink. We ended up with stuff about taxes and traffic and like all kinds of things that weren't related. But then there was a bunch of stuff about information that was related. And we got to email, for example, because there were all these moments where people would roll out of bed in the morning and check their phone, check their email. You know, I'm standing on the train and I look at my email. I get into office and I check my email. Because we had followed and asked people and, and gotten this research, we saw those little moments We're like, okay, that can all tie together. But it also led us in weird directions. I mean, our, our initial business plan had a bar and restaurant in it that we were going to open. Uh, it was going to be like a like an underground jazz club. I think largely because I was obsessed <laughs> with that idea and Bruce and Rebecca talked me out of it. But, uh, you know, it, it led us in weird directions because we saw people also like, I want a place to get together and gather with people. And we're like, cool, we can run a bar knowing nothing about that. Uh, so it, it led us in some directions that we didn't follow probably for the best also. We essentially, you know, you get the feedback, we prototyped, we had it on paper, and then we got a lot of feedback and people were like, that is an entirely other business on top of this other business that you want to do. <laughs> and you should not do that. And we're like, okay. And I think now we're very glad we didn't, but maybe someday we'll get to open that bar. Uh, I wrote a blog post actually last year about how to come up with great profitable business ideas. And kind of the central thesis, if you boil the whole thing down is that you want to start with the problem first, and then you want to experiment with different solutions to that problem. And I think very commonly people pick a solution they're like, I want to open a bar or I want to build this type of app. And they're just so centered on that solution and it prevents them from really understanding, okay, who's going to use this? What's their problem? And if that's not the right solution, like it doesn't matter now because they're stuck doing that. Whereas you guys are like trying all these different zany things because you were more obsessed with the problem. You know, how do we help our local community? And it's obvious that there's like lots of different possibilities for that. So I like that approach because you can kind of explore different opportunities, pick one and then exploit that one by doubling down and going really hard on it which for you guys, it seemed to be that newsletters were really caught on and seemed to be the thing. Yeah, we got advice from one of our early investors who said, when you're trying to solve a problem that you don't necessarily know the answer to or that not, there hasn't been a ton of experimentation around, which at the time, local news totally fell in that bucket. You got to be willing to try everything once. And when you do that thing once, you're like, do we like doing this? Is it profitable? Like, how's it going? 
And we embraced that, which also led us to doing things that I don't know we ever thought we would do. We opened a little event space where our offices were, and Bruce had to scrub the toilets. And we had rats. Uh, we <laughs> Termites also. We ran an event series, you know, all kinds of weird event series, some of which were great, some of which were horrendous. We organized press releases, and we did press conferences that we organized for one customer, and it went horribly wrong, and we did a terrible job. Like, there's just all kinds of stuff like that. Like, we'll try it once, and... You know, and then Bruce would come back and be like, this sucks. Like, we cannot do this again. <laughs> Don't do that to me again. Yeah. <laughs> when you started the newsletter, did you think of it as local news? Because none of this other stuff, it doesn't seem like local news. It's like events, you know, it's community type stuff. But local news is a very specific thing. And it has existed for many decades, centuries, really. And in the last, I guess, couple decades, it hasn't really done very well. It's not the most inspiring line of business to get into. I think it's uh, hard for us to necessarily jump into like the news machine and say, we're going to publish this much stuff and we're going to cover all these topics and we're going to have all these layers of, of editing. We just didn't have that scale. And so it was like, what, where can we fit in this ecosystem? And uh, I think at first when we launched, a lot of local news were like, who are these new players? They're encroaching on our territory. And quickly they realized, hey, we actually are driving traffic to your site and we're complimentary to you and we want to push people to understand your stories better. I think that kind of attention eased a bit and we found our place is just kind of, I think the, the word we use a lot now is community, which is probably overused, but it's really just about, you know, how are you serving this group of people, these users? And, and that comes across obviously in the product we're making now, but you know, we weren't sitting at city hall meetings and trying to get the breaking story. It was more of like, let's just help people navigate the city. Oh man, you got to tell me about these other newspapers who were looking at you as a threat and were uh, talking shit about you. Weirdly, journalists, despite being in the publication business, are actually pretty good at much more subtle shade than that. Uh, so it, <laughs> it, it enters the rumor mill and, and you get to hear things in the back room or out for drinks or, hey, so-and-so said such and such. There's a lot of that going on. I think, you know, pre-no tea, no shade, but, but it was very much that kind of moment where you would hear a lot of stuff in the back channel that way. But I think, as Bruce is saying, it became evident really quickly to people that the mentality was just different and that there didn't have to be a scarcity mindset, which I think exists in a lot of these, particularly if like independent creators and smaller folks, like it's really easy to get sucked into scarcity, particularly when there's big players in town, in our case, like a newspaper. Well, there's already a newspaper, so like, what are we gonna do? But the reality, I think in most of these areas is that there's actually room for a lot more of those instances and they actually kind of help each other out. I used to do research on young people media stuff and there was this through line of like, oh, all these young people are getting their news from the Daily Show and not reading the actual news. This was like a thing in like, you know, the mid aughts or whatever. And the research showed like that wasn't the case at all, that most people who watch the Daily Show also read other news. And that if you watch the Daily Show, you're actually more likely to start reading additional news because it would feed you back into the loop. And so we saw the same thing at the local level. And we would get people coming and saying, I just went to the county commission meeting for the first time in my life to talk about XYZ issue because I read about it in the new tropic, or I just found my business partner or started a new nonprofit with somebody that I met through the Evergrey in Seattle, like these kind of stories. And like obviously we track qual uh, quantitative metrics, but we also try to help our team track qualitative stuff around these community wins where you're helping somebody connect to the city or giving them these moments because that's ultimately the output that we care about, not 
how much coverage are we doing or, you know, whatever. There are other organizations that do a great job of that. So I think part of it was just getting comfortable in our own skin. And it totally took us a while because we spent the first two years, every time something came up, spending time thinking about that, thinking about the competition instead of staying focused on our user. And I think when you get to that point of like, I am here for these people, I make this for them. And it almost doesn't matter what other people are doing. When you get to that point of comfort, I feel like the world totally shifts, at least it did for us. So I want to talk about, you guys have obviously expanded this to multiple cities. You have multiple local news organizations. Obviously, you've learned a lot probably from the similarities and differences. But I want to talk about just like zooming in on like your very first local newsletter, the mechanics of how that worked. So maybe the best way to do this is to compare you with like another story. Are you familiar with Andrew Wilkinson who runs Tiny? Yeah. Yeah, so he's been tweeting about this for maybe the last couple of years about how he's always been a fan of the news. He's always read like these big news organizations, but like his local paper sucked because unfortunately, local newspapers have just been getting outcompeted by the internet and they've lost uh, a lot of their budget and they can't really afford to hire like great investigative journalists, et cetera. And so he's a rich guy. He was thinking about like, what can I do? You know, and maybe I can buy the local newspaper for like $10 million and, you know, improve it and shape it in the way I want it to be shaped. But instead, he just kind of started his own new thing. And so I think his playbook to start with was that he hired a journalist for about 60 grand and was like, all right, you're going to do investigative journalism. You're going to put out some articles, et cetera. And then he spent maybe $200,000 on just like a ton of Facebook ads where really there wasn't much competition. Like the other local newspapers weren't buying Facebook ads. And over time, he was able to grow into, I think, the publication with the largest audience share in his city, which is huge because I believe he lives in Victoria, Canada. So it's kind of a cool story. I mean, he's profitable. He doesn't have a lot of the traditional fixed costs. Like he doesn't actually print a newspaper. You know, he's not like, he doesn't have like a newsroom where, or a big building where everybody's, you know, sitting down, uh, writing the news. Basically a MailChimp newsletter, a Webflow website, a journalist, and some Facebook ads. And that's pretty much it. It kind of feels like this is something anybody could do in their own city. But I'd be curious to see how the story compares to how you guys got started with the Nootropic in Miami. There's a lot of similarities. I think one of the things Andrew did that was really smart was laser focus, right? Reporter, email newsletter, advertising to get people on the email newsletter. We were much more promiscuous with what we were attempting. We tried everything once. I mean, we really did try that, right? Like we ran events. We we did like a painting event called Arts and Drafts that Bruce came up with. We did, I mean, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> and I think a lot of that was like, okay, we're trying to build community here and make it feel stickier and deeper than just interacting with a piece of media content. And in some ways, I still feel like, yeah, that was the right mentality because we wanted stickiness. We wanted people to stick around and feel an affinity for the brand. We wanted that sense of like, I belong to this. And when all you do is interact with an email, that can be harder to build. On the other hand, we were wildly inefficient in comparison to something like what Andrew's done, right? Because we were trying all these other things. And so I think there's benefits to both of those paths, but this is the risk, I think, of starting with the problem. We were so interested in the problem that when the solution presented itself, we were almost slower to get to, this is the focus solution, because we were still iterating and going out and looking for other ways to solve the problem, probably beyond the point where we should have said, oh shit, this is the solution, let's double down on this one. And so we probably got to that a little slower than we should have. Now, six years down the road, I think we're way smarter for having done that because we know all these things that don't work. It's like we've dated enough people to know what we don't like. And so now we can be more confident, you know, in our relationship. Like it's that situation. This idea of focus has been running through my mind a lot since I talked to this guy, Evan Britton, who runs his website, Famous Birthdays. 
and it's this huge website. It gets like two billion page views a year, and it's just like hyper crazy focused. He's got all these different like lanes he could go down. He could do news. He could do like interactivity and create user accounts. But like he's like, no, for nine years I'm just doing the exact same thing over and over and over again. And it's hard to say he's wrong because he's getting billions of page views a year and it's working. And you look at other websites like Twitter. People are constantly like, why isn't Twitter added this or added that? Why don't they do this? They're so dumb. Like they never change it. And it's like, well, Twitter's also used by like hundreds of millions of people. Like maybe there's something to this like hyper focus. Maybe we all think that we can do more things than we really can. And even when you have hundreds or thousands of engineers like Twitter, you probably still can only really do one thing really well. Yeah, I think that nails it. I mean, while we stumbled a little bit in the beginning, it, it did kind of allow us to then keep blinders on as more competition came on because we would see kind of those repeated mistakes we had made in the past in little slivers. We'd say, okay, well, we know that that's not going to work too well or they're about to hit a roadblock. I think that pivoting a little bit to where I'm at now, our mindset is how do we help others avoid those landmines along the way when they're building their thing? Yeah, so let's dive into that a little bit. I'm going to get the, the brass tacks on your newsletter. Who was writing these stories? What did the newsletter look like? Who was subscribing? And how are you, how are you finding these people? This is a great segue from famous birthdays because I think it's a good example, just like Twitter, of it's really hard to scale or like grow something while also adding new columns. Like it's really hard to do breadth and depth at the same time, right? And we learned that really quickly. So when it started, Bruce was doing all of our events and organizing all the community related stuff and doing a lot of the marketing. Our co-founder Rebecca was leading all the editorial content and the actual production of the newsletter and so forth. I did a little bit of writing, but mostly was doing sales, sales work for advertising and things like that. And it worked pretty well because we had all the bases covered. But I also think as another example where we were spread, you know, into multiple categories really early. And so we learned a lot about sales, for example, like how do we sell this thing to advertisers and sponsors? We learned that really fast, but what would happen if all three of us had been working on making the newsletter and that content really excellent in those early, you know, how much more, that's triple the firepower, how much farther would you have gone, you know, instead of dividing your forces at that really, really early stage. And that's something I think we we learned when we went and did the second market. And we went to Seattle, We these two awesome people, Monica and Annika, who were thinking about launching their own thing. They were already on that journey and we got introduced to them and said, hey, wait, these folks are really smart. They have an awesome idea. They know their community really well and we've got a model for how to do this. So let's help give them structure and like take care of the payroll and the website and the, all the stuff that sucks and so that they can focus on the stuff that they're good at, which is the community and the content. And they got to focus in over those first months on building the community, understanding the users, getting the content exactly right, understanding who they were for. And they grew that initial couple of month period, they grew like 10 times faster than our thing did because they had that focus, I think. They're also way smarter than we are, so that helps. But they, <laughs> they were able to like hone in on that, and like, okay, we're just doing this. And then once it had reached that certain point, now it had some traction, then they could go out and sell it and so forth. But I think, I mean, it's really hard to do that except in hindsight, but that was one thing we totally learned is that you cannot replicate it and grow it and experiment with new stuff at the and learn a new skill all at the same time, unless you're superhuman. So this is almost like podcast network model where, you know, maybe there's a parent company who gets together a bunch of podcasters and they share knowledge and resources and help with ads. You're doing the same thing for newsletters. Uh, it was called a new tropic in Miami. What's it called in Seattle? Because I'd love to subscribe to this. I actually live in Seattle at the moment. The Evergrey. The Evergrey. Cool. Sounds like the right way to describe the weather in Seattle. Honestly, that was a thing we even struggled with and had to experiment with. Is like, is the new tropic the wrong name? Should it be Where by Us Miami? Where by Us Seattle? And we thought that localized brand name 
is authentic. It is of the city. You know, it has that character to it. And I think that matters a lot, especially in the Pacific Northwest, where they can smell, you know, an imposter from a mile away. It wasn't just, hey, this Miami company is coming in and telling you about your city. It's, you know, we're helping provide structure to local writers. So you find these two women in Seattle who already kind of want to do their own local newsletter. What is the knowledge that you impart? Like, what are some of the specific things that you tell them to help them get started? A lot of it was about the process of getting to know the market and branding it and getting that initial stuff out of the way. That, I think, was the first value. The part where you go from, there's something here, people in this community would be interested in something, there's energy here, I could make something that would be useful to, this is exactly what it is and what the structure is and what we're going to call it and how it's going to feel. That part is like the impossible journey through the woods where everybody gets lost, right? Because it's like, you could guess wrong and, you know, it's the whole thing we are talking about before about niche. So that was the first part. Is there like a playbook for that? Yeah, we built this whole little deck of how to do research in a local community and do the creepy follow-along <laughs> research that we did in Miami. It really wasn't that creepy. We, we asked for permission. But it, we built that deck of like how to do this. And then we built some Airtable templates that where you filled in all the findings and sort of assembled everything. And then this little Google Slides presentation where you would kind of capture what you learned. And so we turned it into like this process that could be implemented. And now we're starting to consider doing that in like other topics other than local. But we built it for this idea of like, how do you understand, capture, and respond to a city in this short, like two week research sprint, and then come out two to four weeks later with like a brand and a thing. And then we knew here's the product, here's the website template, all of that. So we sort of had all of that and that sort of saved them, hopefully six months or whatever of work they would have done on their own sort of getting started. And then we had all the like operational payroll, admin kind of infrastructure and the sales infrastructure. So those were really the things that we brought to the table. And you know, they, they knew the city and they did the content. The thing about that research process that was really, really awesome too is not just figuring out your your community. Is we we had topics to cover. We knew what people were interested in because we'd cluster and say the transit's a big thing. Okay, we know that's got to be a topic also in the newsletter. But then the other fun thing was we had super users right from the beginning. You know, we'd spend an hour or two with folks, interviewing them with the human centered approach and just listening. And these people were invested in the product at that point. They wanted updates. They wanted to subscribe. They were the first people we sent these newsletters to. I think, you know, intentionally making sure we got a lots of different perspectives that opened us up to a lot of communities. And I would definitely advise folks if they're creating more newsletters is to go out, do that research and help and, and stay in touch with those people you talk to. They're going to be your first users. Yeah. I wonder how much people can do this digitally and not just locally. So like locally, you have obviously a community in a city like Miami or Seattle or Pittsburgh or wherever you guys are. Uh, you can go just talk to real people. Like let's talk to someone who owns a deli shop. Let's talk to someone you know works on transit. Let's talk to people in government. But online, you also have communities. You have Andy Hacker's community. You have little sort of implicit communities on Twitter. You have communities like Hacker News. You have communities on Reddit. And I imagine these probably work the same way. And there might be like an unexplored opportunity here where people could like bootstrap a newsletter or some sort of publication targeted specifically at just one community. And they hit it from every angle, they get the news and people who are part of that community get subscribed to that newsletter. And it's way easier than going to like, you know, whatever website and having to comb through like a thousand posts and try to find the signal and the noise. I feel like you could probably just unbundle Reddit and make newsletter communities for each little community that has, you know, over a thousand members. Like you could probably pop something up pretty quick and get some interest or also know that that idea was bad and you can move on. Like myself personally, I sometimes I get latched into an idea and until I test it, it just stays there. And so it's like, can I just prototype and like learn? So I think that's a great thing. So let's talk about two different things. One, I want to talk about growth because for the vast majority of founders, 
indie hackers in particular who don't have a lot of resources, they're always wondering like, how do I grow? Like I'm doing this thing and I might even be doing a good job, but like if you build it, they will come is not necessarily <laughs> true for lots of different types of projects. The other thing I want to talk about is just process. You know, you've got this playbook. Obviously, it's a little bit different for every different city, but I kind of want you to spill a little bit of your secrets here. You know, like what is the same? Uh, how do you structure and write news or a newsletter in a way that works across any city? I think one of the things we've learned is that you only get truly to do one or two things in your work with regular originality. This is the whole thing with Pixar and Creativity Inc. And, you know, the structure that underlies the creative process allows you to be creative in the thing you're actually making. And so if you're like being creative about like how you're paying your bills or how you order pens to the office, like you're probably not your th actual product is going to suck because you're spending all your energy like being creative about that. And that's something that, you know, I certainly struggle with. I'm not a process person, but our co-founder Rebecca is very much process oriented. And I think we've been able to get that mentality right over time, which is like, if all these other things are predictable and fixed and totally uninteresting, then the creativity can go into the actual content. So pretty much everything about our newsletters is standardized in terms of what goes into them, the what kind of expectations and metrics we set, how we estimate our sales goals, how we think about our membership program. All of this stuff is the same at a foundational level across markets so that our local editors who are really running these brands and, and working like sort of the mini CEOs of these brands, they can apply their creativity to the content, the city, the voice, and like what's local to the market. Um, so that's the way we think about it is like fixed foundation that is the same everywhere. And then we can build a cool house on top of it because you know that the foundation is solid and somebody's done the work to make sure it's going to be sturdy. We did a medium post, a couple of medium posts actually a couple of years ago about the research process we use in these cities and things like that. So we've made a lot of that open and put templates up on Google drive and stuff like that. Yeah. So if I had to guess, just like from the outside looking in, probably some of the standardized things might be like what topics you're writing about or what kinds of articles you write about. So there might be like, we're gonna, always going to do editorial. We're always going to have a crime section. We're always going to have like local business stories. We're always going to have XYZ, maybe business model. So we're always going to, you know, be advertiser sponsored. And here's where the ads are going to go in our newsletters. And we're always going to have like, you know, a membership paid section for people who really want ex the extra scoop. Talk to me about some of these things, you know, like specifically, like how do your newsletters make money and how do you even structure the news? This plays into why we built Letterhead too in a big way, which is you want to have as many revenue tools at your disposal as you can. I think it's the rare creator, the rare media business that gets to say like, we're only doing X because you need a lot of tools in order to make things work in a tough environment. And so we do advertising that is listings and really simple self-service ads where anyone can buy an ad in our newsletters. We do custom native content that we work on with sponsors over many months and really build a, a thoughtful longer term campaign with them. We do memberships, we used to do before COVID, events. So we do all kinds of different tools to make the revenue as diverse as possible and to sort of combine the reliability of recurring reader subscriptions with the opportunity to really grow and get extra fuel from larger advertising deals and so forth. So the first principle is like, let's put all of that on the table and try to mix those things together in a way that works. So we have as many tools at our disposal as we can. That's a big part of it. And then the second piece is just really focusing on the community engagement and monetizing that. So we're, we try really hard to resist the pull of as many impressions as possible or 
you know, how do we get as many page views as we can or whatever. We try to keep everything, the conversation with advertisers, the way we track our metrics, aligned to how many engaged people are there who are part of this community who seem to care about it enough to regularly participate in it. That is ultimately the thing that matters, the thing that advertisers care about. But it's so easy to chase shiny objects. I'm the chief offender of that in our company. Like, it is so easy to be like, oh, here's this cool thing we could also do that someone says they want. And it's so easy to just like, oh, yeah, let's go do that, right? But if you know what the thing is you really prize at the top, and you're like looking at it every week, I think it's way easier to resist that temptation. And then I think when you asked a question about like, I had like flashbacks or like, you know, PTSD of like, where does it go in the newsletter and stuff is I think for a while we struggled with that. It was like, oh, there's a new thing. We want to do a new, like Chris's thing, shiny object. We're trying a new format. Where does it go? And we would have, you know, a whole meeting and workshop and where do we want this to go? How's it going to be? And so it's like before we got to the process and before we did all the experimentation, it was painful. But I think we finally land to a place now that it's like, we don't have to make that decision. It's about the creative, uh, which has been big. And I think when we also started, like, again, I have more of an artist background, which is, you know, fluff, but it was like, oh, let's not constrain people. Let's like say you can create the newsletter. And really that made things worse. The writers struggle because it's like, that's stressful. You know, you're dealing with like hard hitting news and I have to distill this. And now I have to figure out what to write every day on deadline. It was super, super painful. So I think this would be advice to any other creator out there, especially in content is like, just stay to that formula you can repeat because then you can get really creative about the subjects and, and how you play within that box. And that's where you get to shine. Yeah, when I started Indie Hackers, I had kind of the same thing where I would watch all these other people with newsletters and blogs, just be like, from my perspective, endlessly creative every week. And I'm like, that looks exhausting. <laughs> I don't wanna have to figure out a new thing to write about every week. Like, what if I just had like one very specific structured interview format and I don't have to think about that at all. You know, the variety will come from the different people that I interview who are going to give me very different answers, but it's not going to come from me having to exhaust all this, you know, burn all these calories being creative every week. So that worked really well for me. And it seems like it's kind of the same approach you guys took. Does that mean the solution is just like creative laziness is really the secret to, <laughs> to success here? You have to be creative, but you also have to be lazy enough to be like, I don't want to do all that work every week. I'm going to make some documentation. <laughs> it's like upfront creativity. You put in the creative work upfront but then you put it on an assembly line so that later on you can sort of like reproduce that creativity easily. And then whenever you feel a burst of inspiration, like you create like another assembly line, like another type of content or another structure or format that you can sort of figure out and hone and then eventually becomes sort of mindless and really easy to do. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who resist that content factory notion because it's been done wrong so many times. But I think that has more to do with, to your point, like the upfront creativity, like what are you making and is authenticity built into it? And is it compelling to people or is it just random clickbait, you know, articles of what celebrities look like 50 years ago? That's, it's like, it starts at the front end, right? But we resist the process when really we should be resisting content that people don't care about or whatever, right? And that's a really interesting idea. Yeah, I'm starting a new show with a buddy of mine who's been on this podcast before. And we spent probably like a month or two just thinking about the show. Like, who do we want to have on the show? What's the point? Who's it for? Why does it exist? What's it going to be like? What's the format? And just thinking about the stuff up front can get you much closer to the target that you want to arrive at. Like, you still have to make tweaks later. You're never going to get it right all up front. But it's just better to plan up front, I think, if you can. And a lot of people don't do this because they have a lot of trouble getting started in the first place. And if they do this kind of stuff, they're just going to fall prey to analysis paralysis and never get started. But I think, you know, if you're the kind of person who's self-motivated and you're like, you have a bias towards action. Like you guys didn't really seem to have a lot of problem with motivation. You just got started. If you can do that, then it's worth planning up front. Well, I will say I appreciate the compliment, but uh, it's been a lot of work to get to that point. And I think we still are like very carefully slide back into those habits and we hold each other accountable. That's for sure. Yeah. That's one of the huge benefits to having co-founders is you just have, they're like built in accountability buddies. 
And it's easy to underestimate how tough it is to stay motivated as a solo founder and also just focused because the fewer people you have, if you're just one person, that means you have to be even more ruthless about what you're going to say no to and the things you're not going to do. Let's talk about growth and then we'll move on to, to letterhead. Uh, how did you grow your subscriber base with the new Tropic? And when you move into these new cities and work with new authors, how are you helping them grow their subscriber bases? Because getting like people to actually care about your newsletter and to grow it to the point where advertisers care is not easy to do. Well, I'll tell you, it's something that is an ongoing learning process for us where this past year in 2020, we actually didn't see as much like top of funnel growth of like the free readership base of our newsletters because we put so much energy into growing our paid subscriber base, growing our advertising products, pivoting some of our content because of COVID and everything else going on in the world. And those things paid off for us business-wise, right? We come out of the year with a profitable business and really good profit margins and a lot of improvement over the last year. But you know, I think even at our size, we're an example of you can't do everything well without tons of money. And we've never invested much money at all in paid acquisition of readers, partly because we just haven't wanted to dedicate our, our resources to that, and partly because we didn't want to become reliant on it as the growth method. Like I, I remember listening to a podcast way back when we were starting, it was an interview with a venture investor, and they're saying, whenever I see a company where the vast majority of their growth in users, particularly if the core product is free, is coming out of paid, I do like a double check. I, I want to look under the hood more deeply because that tells me like maybe there's some astroturfing going on. Sometimes it works, but sometimes it means that, hey, we're just paying our way through to this thing and there's not actually a business under here. And that kind of stuck with us to say like, okay, if we can grow organically for the most part, even if it's slower, it's going to be stickier. And we did some testing to try and figure out if that was true. So we did this analysis of like when a reader comes onto our newsletters, are they more likely to stay engaged and click and open stuff and refer us to their friends based on where they, what source they came from, which is of course super common in like the business intelligence world, but from like smaller writers and publications is often impossible to do that level of data analysis. And we fortunately had some people on our team who had that experience and we were able to build a little dashboards for it and all that. And what we found really clearly was like when people come in organically, a friend refers them, you know, they discover it through a piece of content that they care about, they're way more likely to be engaged than someone that we paid to acquire. And when you add up the value of that over anything longer than like six months, it's just way more valuable to grow organically than to pay for it in our business. And so we just always shied away from that paid growth and focused on organic. And it means you grow a little slower, but it means the engagement is higher. And if you've done the niche focus work really well that we talked about before, then you can still have a good profitable business that way. So I, I think we have found really clearly, like you don't have to have a ton of money for paid acquisition to do this. If you can get the organic thing right and get the engagement out of it, even with a thousand or 5,000 readers or whatever, you know, you can have a meaningful business. And, and now that's like commonplace kind of notion with all these new tools that have come along. But even in local news, like we've been able to sort of show like, okay, this can work. You just have to be willing to not boil the ocean and have something that, you know, is compelling enough for people to stick to. And I think the thing that we were able to get over early on was the idea that at media, you have to have the most people and the largest audience to get the advertisers. And so we had to very early on tell the story of these are who these people are and here's how engaged they are and, and here's the events they're going to. And that helped us secure early investors too. And so I think if you have that organic growth in this really deep community, it's so much easier to go into a sponsorship conversation and say like, these are the people you want and they are like very invested in this type of topic. So I think that's a big one for people. I follow Austin Reef on Twitter. He's the founder of The Morning Brew, 
one of the co-founders. And Morning Brew is this huge newsletter that's grown to, I think, a couple million, maybe two or three million subscribers. And he's got this pen tweet at the top of his profile where he talks about kind of a thread of threads. And each one of the threads explains one part of how they were able to grow Morning Brew. So he's got one on paid acquisition, and he's got one on the early days, now they found their very first users. And in that one, he talks about how they would actually go to college campuses, and they would go to professors and ask if they could do presentations in front of their students. And then they would pass around a clipboard and ask everybody to write down their email address so they could take those email addresses home and like manually subscribe them to the Morning Brew because they didn't trust that if they told people their website that they would actually follow through and do it. So uh, I'm curious how you guys approached this in the early days. You know, If you imagine that you were some solo founder trying to start a newsletter and get your first you know, 100, 200 subscribers, uh, what would your approach be for that? We don't know a single newsletter creator, I will say. like We know a lot of people making newsletters now. Like I don't know that I think of a single one whose journey at some point didn't involve a piece of paper with like manual sign up and then going home later and like trying to read what the fuck it was somebody <laughs> wrote on their, on their piece of paper because their handwriting is terrible. I think everybody has that story for that reason. I don't know, Bruce, I mean, you're, I feel like you're the one with all the, the fun creative thoughts about this. Like, Well, if you're saying 100 to 200, I think the first thing is the people you know in this space or like friends and family is the most obvious, like get people in there and start getting critique. The other thing um, I think is big in that initial phase is we really embraced like what we say, our, our value was embrace the beta, meaning like things are rough. We're learning. We're going to be really transparent. And I think the thing you're talking about too, with these Twitter threads that are like transparent is people love to just see vulnerability and be a part of it and have a conversation. So that was a big thing for us too. And so those first 10 that you get, ask them for personal help and just say, Hey, if you know anyone that might be possibly interested, it's free. I could really use the help. And like, you can get to that fairly quickly. And I think that vulnerability also takes some of the edge off the salesiness of like, sign up for my thing. It's like, I really care about this community and here's what I'm trying to build. And I would appreciate if you would check it out. I, that would be my like easiest, lowest hanging fruit thing to do. And then beyond that referral tool technology has grown a lot we build our own initially. But readers will send us on to friends because one, they want their friend to know about it. But two, it's also kind of like a badge. It's like a little moment of like, check out this thing I read. This, this is kind of my, part of my identity is supporting this group and I want you to know about it. And so I think if you have some ability to do that as well, that can help tremendously. I think that applies to the business side too, where somebody gave me the advice, like go to the people who are never going to invest in your company first or the customers who are never going to actually hire you first and get feedback on your thing so that you don't burn that learning on people who are actually like valid customer targets or advertisers or investors. And that was really good advice. I wish I remember who told me that, but we went out and did it. And we talked to some friends who did investing and people who invested in other kinds of companies. And we talked to advertisers who were like way too big for us or totally not a fit or not located in Miami and gave them our decks and gave them our sales pitch thing. Like tear this apart if you don't mind. And that was so useful even when we were early because we sort of got it out of the system. So by the time we took it to somebody more legit who was actually a lead or a target or a potential investor, we had gone through that first phase of like shaking out the, the parts that were broken and it felt a lot more polished. People underestimate how helpful other people on the internet will be if you're actually legitimately working on stuff. So if you've got nothing going on and you're just like, hey, I've got some ideas I'm noodling on and I haven't really started yet and I've got nothing really to my name, people are going to be like, don't bother me. But if you actually started working on something, then you probably run into some roadblocks and you could message somebody else who's working on that thing and like give them like specific information about what you're working on, what you're stuck on, ask them specifics about what they're working on, 
and it's just way easier for people to help. Don't you in ask situation. to pick your brain. Yeah, no <laughs> picking brains, please. Yeah, don't be vague. Respect people's time. Don't ask them to meet for no discernible reason. Don't ask them to meet just because you want something from them. Like they've got other things to do. You know, I do this for indie hackers. Actually, I'll, I'll spend a lot of time researching and reading things just so I sort of know what's going on in the community. And then when somebody's name comes up, I'll think, oh, this is really interesting for reasons X, Y, Z, and I'll, I'll message them. And I'll say something about their product, I'll offer an idea or something, and try to get them on the phone. And pretty much everybody says yes to that, because like, who's going to say no to somebody who can like potentially help you with what you're working on, messaging with ideas and, and tips. So I think that's just a great way to learn in general. If you read blog posts, you're going to get like something that was written three years ago for a general audience. If you get somebody on the phone, you're going to get like a highly motivated, engaged person who can respond to exactly what you're saying, who knows about your situation, who's going to give you much better information than you could find, probably written anywhere. I, I might regret this. I'll say to anyone listening, if you want to talk about, let's say, newsletters and what you're working on, holler at me, like send me a note, drop me a thing on Twitter. I love helping people workshop that stuff. But as long as it's specific, it's like, I'm working on this thing and I'm curious about the next step. If it's about, you know, generally I can send you links, you know, articles to awesome stuff that are resources. But yeah, I think, I think specific problems are also fun. It's a fun break from the work for other experts too, just to be like, yeah, like let's geek out on this one topic for a minute. Typically you just, you don't expect anything from it other than a great conversation and maybe insight to a, a new perspective. And I'm the business guy. So I guess it's my job to be like, this also applies to the business side. But I think this specificity also is super useful for sales and, and things like that, because there are all these people who will sell like advertising or software or sponsorships and their outreach email or Twitter DM or whatever is like, Hey, would love to chat, but it's actually like, I want to sell you something, but I don't say that on the cover so much more effective to just say like, Hey, here's what's up. Like I have this thing. I think it would actually be really cool for you. Are you interested? Because if they're not interested, you better find out fast, like save yourself some time. Don't bury the lead. If somebody emails me or DMs me and they're like trying to like hide what they're going to ask, like not only am I probably not going to say yes to the thing in the first place, but like now I'm suspicious. Like, why are you hiding this thing from me? Like, why don't you just tell me what it is? You know, don't DM me and ask me if you can ask me a question. Like, just ask the question. Let's talk about Letterhead. You guys have, uh, you haven't quite pivoted. You're still doing the new Tropic. You're still growing uh, in cities across America. Still making millions of revenue from that. But now you've got this new SaaS tool that you're building. You started on last year. It's kind of this perfect playbook where you start a company and in the course of running that company, you come up with new ideas and new products and then you realize other people could probably use that as well. Uh, so what is Letterhead and why'd you start it? Well, in a sentence or two, Letterhead is a tool for helping anybody build and grow and launch a newsletter business. We talk about it like Shopify for newsletters on shorthand. That it would be our wildest dreams, of course. But the idea is how do you help somebody publish a newsletter, build great content, monetize it through advertising and through memberships, and be able to do all of that in one container? Earlier, I said, hey, we have a lot of different revenue channels. We do advertising. We have big ads and native campaigns and small ads and memberships, all these different pieces. Biggest challenge if you're a small team or even a big team, but you're a small team or an individual is like, sure, that sounds nice, but how am I going to possibly juggle all those balls at once? Like it's impossible. And so Letterhead is designed to bring all of that into one place where it's modular. You can use the parts of it you want not use the parts you don't need, but it's all in one place so you can actually manage all of that in an efficient way and cut out most of the time involved in doing that stuff well, which is not writing the content, but actually making the data talk to each other, getting the advertisement placed, getting the metrics back to the advertiser, getting the subscription data to talk to your email list. Like all of these things are where people waste so much time and there's so much frustration. So we started from the place of like, how do we cut all of that out so that it's possible to build businesses like like ours with way less overhead, 
way faster and with an eye toward the business always, because most of these email tools that are out there are focused on marketing rather than on newsletters as the core product. Right. And who's like your ideal customer? Like, of course, like Substack exists. A lot of people are using Substack, uh, mostly like individual newsletter creators who just want to get the word out. And Substack kind of helps them, gives them the writing tools and a website and a community and a newsletter and like some payment stuff. Uh, How do you guys see yourself in alignment with tools like Substack and Ghost and MailChimp, et cetera? Yeah, we see Substack as an awesome tool for for individual writers and for folks who are starting out and for people who are membership only, right? Like, I only want to do subscriptions. What we see happening is that as a lot of these businesses grow and they start to have more revenue channels and become more multifaceted businesses and for teams and publishing brands and other kinds of organizations that are not individual writers or, you know, small teams of writers, there's a need for the newsletter to talk to the rest of the business and for there to be advertising and subscription and for these things to integrate with other tools. Those are the kind of needs of a business operating newsletter business, whether you are a small team or some other kind of organization. And those business needs are the ones we're interested in solving. So we talk about Letterhead as a set of business tools, right, rather than a writing platform or something like that, because there are already some awesome solutions for that. And we hear from people who are kind of graduating from Substack quite a bit recently. And we talk to people who are wanting to start a newsletter and we send them to Substack because they describe their needs. And we're like, there's actually an awesome tool for this already. So we see it kind of like that. And we see a lot of folks coming to us from platforms like MailChimp, where they're using MailChimp for their lists and sending and for their marketing email, but they want to do an email newsletter where there's an actual content product. And it's really hard to use a tool like MailChimp for that. It's just not designed for it. And so that's why we actually integrate with ESPs like MailChimp. So you can stay with MailChimp and use Letterhead on top of it to do your newsletter and your advertising and and your subscriptions. I think early on, we're seeing early adoption from folks who have a newsletter And they are thinking of advertisements, but they're kind of hacking together solutions. You know, there's like submit your type form and we'll email you back and forth. And they're seeing the breakdown in that process and want to offload that. And they're using letterhead to help manage the storefront, take payments, get creative, approve the creative, and then insert it into the newsletter without going into spreadsheets because we had that same challenge. (laughs) Yeah. When I first started Indie Hackers, I had sponsors and like I put them on the website, the podcast and the newsletter. And the newsletter is pretty annoying because it was very visual, kind of like the website. People, you know, you'd have to like go back and forth over the copy. I didn't have a place for people to come kind of sign up and like upload their stuff. So I had a million emails. People were sending me like, oh, use this image. Wait a minute, use this image, et cetera, et cetera. And I was probably spending like half my time just on the advertising side. It's fun when you make a sale. It's not fun when you're dealing with all the other bullshit. Yeah, it's fun to make the money until they're like that high settles down. You're like, oh, I have to go write the newsletter now. <laughs> exactly. And oh, that other sponsor didn't send me an ad that I need. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you got to track all the stats, etc. So it seems like a super cool tool. You've grown it already to 25000 a month in revenue, which is really fast growth for a SaaS company. You know, a lot of people with like info products and paid newsletters and communities and like courses, and they're usually quite able to like get up to high revenue numbers quite quickly. But people with SaaS tools, it's usually kind of a slow burn. There's a lot of research. People aren't paying that much to begin with. What do you attribute the sort of like, you know, month over month doubling of your growth to and being able to hit 25K a month in revenue in, in under a year? Part of it is we started with a solution to a problem that we find is like really common and tried to deliberately make it easy to say yes to. Because one of the things we ran into as publishers ourselves is like, there's an infinitely expanding universe of tools for so many things. And I certainly have shiny object problem of like, hey, here's a cool new tool I could use, but you have to switch and migrate and train everybody. And it can be really difficult to adopt those things. So even if there is a better way of doing it, 
it becomes hard to use. So one of the things we built in from the beginning was this works with your MailChimp. You can keep your existing email service provider. You can keep your existing workflow. This sits on top and helps with your existing work. You don't have to just like buy everything we do and do this complete migration. It's not Salesforce where you have to spend 12 years adopting it and you know <laughs> this complicated thing. So we, we tried to be really deliberate about that. I think that helped us. Um, and then the other piece is that we're not just generating revenue from subscriptions uh, to the software itself, but we also are doing a lot of shared advertising sales, helping sell advertising placements across the different newsletters that are using Letterhead. And it's still early days there. We're still learning a lot about how to do that. But we've talked to, over the last six months, a lot of different kinds of advertisers that want to reach different audiences. They have big audience numbers they want to hit, but they want to reach engaged, actual human beings in a direct way, and they like newsletters as a channel for that. So we're helping them do that across the different newsletters that are using Letterhead. And that's a big percentage of our revenue as well. So having both of those revenue tools at our disposal has also helped us grow really quickly. I love that because when you think about a SaaS tool, I mean, it's a, it's a programmer's like wet dream. Like I'm just going to code this thing and it's just going to be a money tree Then I'm going to be rich or whatever. But like, if you think about the problems that people have, a lot of them are like kind of service-based problems where like they don't know how to grow their newsletter or they don't know how to find advertisers. And sometimes those are the most important problems, you know, getting more users, more readers, and more advertisers. So if you kind of just ignore that and try to do nothing but the mechanical, you're kind of leaving a big business opportunity on the ground. And, you know, this idea of like a passive income generating SaaS tool, uh, although it's attractive, is usually a, a pipe dream. <laughs> most of the people I know working on SaaS tools are still working every day, like everybody working on services. So I like the idea that you're combining the two. You know, like there are, for example, Megaphone and podcast hosting, you know, they'll host your podcast, but they'll also like programmatically insert ads into your show when you don't have an ad that you found. And it's like, okay, well, they're doing this cool service for you in addition to hosting. So like, why wouldn't you use that? Or with um, Andy Hackers, like we're sort of building an almost Substack clone for people who want to start newsletters. And like you guys, like ours is compatible. So a lot of our early series authors have Substacks. We're like, oh yeah, keep your Substack, but also write for Andy Hackers. And what we'll help you with is distribution. We'll put you in front of the Andy Hackers audience and get you a lot of users. And like, that's very service-based for us, but like they love that because Substack isn't helping with that. So it's super cool that you actually help your early customers with advertising rather than just like, here's a tool, it'll help you write, it'll help you publish, but it's, that's it. You know, it's nothing but a robot and that's all you get. Bruce has been doing a lot of this, like just doing a ton of content marketing and working on how can we get guides and helpful tips and templates out to folks who are who are using letterheads. So that's something that we're, we're hoping to do a lot more of too, is just here are some guides and templates. Here's what other people are doing that's working. Because there's so much of that that's like, there's a lot of advice out there that's generic, but getting from zero to doing that is the hardest part. So how do we give people little ways to get started? The thing I'm trying to learn right now, and I would love, again, like, send me your, your questions about newsletters, but also I'm curious, like, what are people actually gonna ingest? Yeah, these are busy people, they're they're hacking away. It might be at the side hustle, it might be the full-time job, but I'm like, you know, if I make a tutorial webinar video, you know, this whole course, will that actually be the most useful tool to these creators in the moment when it's like, I just need an answer how to grow. What am I gonna do right now to grow today while I have to write this thing or, you know, work on a membership call to action? That's currently the journey I'm on is trying to understand where to meet people at. And then my last thing is, Cortland, we should definitely figure out what's going on with this Indie Hackers newsletter and figure something out. Wink, wink. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should be collaborating. <laughs> no, the one thing I wanted to add to the end of that is like, I see in this in the newsletter community, the immediate thing is membership, which makes a ton of sense. So I have users, sign up to membership, get me some MRR and, you know, and build that. We came from it 
completely opposite, which I'm not saying is right. But what it did is gave us a lot of fundamentals in like, how do we sell ads, sponsorships and things like that. And membership was like almost an afterthought for a while. It was just like, we have this thing. If you want to be a member, great. We have special content and events and discounts. And since the pandemic, we right-sized that and, you know, go to your audience and kind of open like, hey, we need support. And it's been helpful for us as well to just understand the, how you can play those two things to build more revenue. Like if you have a strong membership base now, and, and let's say maybe free readers on top of that, there is a lot of opportunity in opening up sponsorships if you can do it the right way to not distract from that other core experience. And so that's what I'm like, I'm getting anxious. I see these groups out there and like, man, these people are doing such good things. And if they're interested in it, but they haven't done it because of this whole, it's too much work, you know, could we help serve them? And could they hire more writers? Could they expand to new, new markets? Like that's going to be the thing that gets exciting for me. I mean, I love this whole area because ND Hackers, I mean, we talked about this before the call, the whole point of the show and the website is to inspire more people to get started. It's kind of like the very top of the funnel of entrepreneurship. Everybody who's on the fence of like, can I start an online business or should I keep working at my nine to five? And the easier it becomes to start an online business, the more people who do it. And so the fact that like there are these multiple methods of basically getting online, learning some stuff, and then sharing your knowledge with others and actually building a profitable business for yourself on top of that is super cool. And the fact that you guys and other people like you are building tools to make it easier for people to do this just feeds into the cycle. Where we're just going to see more and more people writing newsletters, selling courses, launching eBooks, building websites that are informative, et cetera. And like, that's kind of like the first stepping stone into being financially independent and hacker. So I love what you guys are doing. We're about out of time here. So I want to wrap up and just ask each of you based on your journey, the last five or six years, what's your advice for a fledgling indie hacker who's just getting started and maybe they don't know what they're going to work on or maybe they just took the very first steps uh, what do you think they can learn from what you two have learned i would say that the best thing you can do is a deep understanding of the community you're trying to reach the audience who you're trying to sell to or build with i think too often we make assumptions based on our own perspectives and that's super dangerous and you're going to spend a lot of time that you have limited amount of energy and resources I would say attempts before you start to just give up and say, oh, I'm not that kind of person. I can't do this sort of thing. So take that time to slow down and think and do the research and have conversations, read and Twitter ver in Twitter sphere that you're not a part of and start to really understand it. But that would be my thing. Do a little bit of that research, take a pause. I love it. So uh, just to summarize, start by understanding your customers, your community. You know, you really only get a limited number of attempts to try to figure out what people want. And so you can cut down on the number of attempts required by really focusing on people. And I love that because it's kind of fun. You know, when you, you sit down and you start coding and building, it's very lonely and isolating and there's a lot of stress because you're not sure people want it. But if you start by doing nothing but like, you know, having calls with people and reading what they're saying and talking to them and like you guys did, following them around the city, like that stuff is just kind of very fun and energizing. So I love that you start that way. And then second point, break your giant journey down into a lot of bite-sized steps because it's not going to be like you just go from zero to a million in a day. You know, it's going to be a long, windy process. And if you sort of chart a course and plan ahead, going to be in for fewer surprises and it's going to be easier to make decisions and switch directions along the way. So uh, Chris, Bruce, thanks a ton for coming on the show. A lot of good advice, great story, some good chatter about local news. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Cortland. Appreciate it. Can you let listeners know where they can go to, to not ask if they can pick your brains, but to uh, find out what you're doing and ask very specific questions about newsletters and, and content and whatever else might be on their minds? Well, first, you could check out Letterhead. It's at tryletterhead.com. Um, you'll see a little bit of what we're working on there. And obviously, we have a contact form if you want to kind of talk deeper about that. But um, personally, you can send me a note at bruce at whereby.us, W-H-E-R-E-B-Y.us. That's my email. Or follow me on Twitter, Bruce Pinchbeck. 
Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and you want an easy way to support the podcast, you should leave a review for us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Probably the fastest way to get there if you're on a Mac is to visit ndhackers.com slash reviews. I really appreciate your support and I read pretty much all the reviews you leave over there. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, I will see you next time. Mm